It's a, it's a funny thing to walk in back there and hear your own voice on the screen. Am I talking already? Uh, I hope you get, to, get a chance to get to know John. He's got, in addition to having a wonderful pastoral beard, I tell him he looks like Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's a great, great guy, and he's going to be a great asset, a wonderful asset to our staff and our church family as well. So look forward to that. Um, we're in a series called The Disciplines of Grace. If you've been on vacation this summer or maybe not tracking along, and speaking of tracking along, you can do that if you miss any of the sermons. All at every campus, they're available on the website and on the church app each week. But we're looking at the disciplines of grace, and those words don't always get put together like in our minds, right? Discipline sounds like physical training or punishment, and grace sounds liberation and nice. We don't, how do those fit? The Bible puts them together in a powerful way in the life of the Christ follower, meaning that the grace of God, you saw the, the, the verse quoted there, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. It forgives our sin. Not only that, it trains us, the word in Greek is paideia, also used for discipline, disciplines us to live godly lives. So God's grace not only forgives our sin, but also conditions, trains, disciplines us to walk in that grace, to experience more of it. And we've been looking at historically and biblically the practices Jesus' followers have put into place to help them live in that grace, experience more of it, become more of the men and women God made us to be. Uh, the one we're going to look at this morning, the discipline, is not... A popular one, it's the discipline of, bum, 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 confession. Are you excited? I can tell by looking at you. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's misunderstood. There's some baggage with this. We, I think in our culture, for example, confession in our, in our broader secular culture works in a very dysfunctional, strange, unhelpful way. But when public personalities, celebrities, politicians, business owners, even sadly pastors, get caught Exposed doing something wrong, sinning. How often do they, is their first reaction to come out publicly and say, I've been hiding for a long time. I'm so glad this is out. I can deal with my own sin now. I'm going to withdraw from my position and work on my soul. I'm so, so sorry. Please pray for me. I don't hear that very often. Do you? What do you hear? It's a conspiracy. I didn't do it. It's all lies. Then it's, well, I did some of it but not as much as they're saying. And then it's to save face or save position. Okay, fine, I did it. This not biblical confession. Or maybe you grew up in a tradition where the confession worked like it was obligatory. You went to confession to, make, to unpack your stuff to a priest or a pastor or a minister, and they told you what you had to do to experience forgiveness. And you maybe colored it or hid it or protected yourself a little bit from that. I talked to a man... Uh, a number of years ago, who was, he, he grew up Roman Catholic, and he had walked away from the Catholic Church and from God in general for many years in his life, and was, I would say, making his way back to God, and he found himself at our church, and was starting to really grow and experience grace, and he, we met for coffee, and he said, listen, I grew up Catholic, and my priest once said to me that you Protestants don't believe in confession, so that's why I came here. <laughs> I was like, well, I understand why he said that, but I want to tell, I told him, and I want to tell you, we do, or at least we should, if we take the Bible seriously. Now, there are some significant differences in how we practice confession, and we'll talk about those. But we, we say every week that we want to be a place that where people can experience grace. Confession is one of the primary pathways in which that happens. If you want to experience the grace of Jesus in your life, you can't avoid this one. You're limiting yourself. In fact, John Calvin, in the, in the introduction to the Institutes of Christian Religion, his massive you know, life's work, 
he wrote that the very beginning, there is no self-knowledge without knowledge of God, and there's no knowledge of God without knowledge of self. To avoid confession is to limit both. Uh, you'll see an image here on the screen of my front yard. My wife loves, well, more than two things, but two things that are in this picture. Um, the flowers and the cubs. This is the, the W flag that they had won, in case you're wondering. We hang that only when they win at our house. It's bad luck if you hang it when they don't win. I found that out. We have to drive home sometimes and take the flag down. The Cubs are playing and the flag's still up. But that's another issue I won't talk about. We'll confess that later. Anyway, uh, she, this hanging flower pot that's hanging there in the front yard, we came home from a vacation and there had been some storms and the wind and the rain had, had soaked it and it had fallen over. It was laying in kind of the, uh, in the, in the what are those, the bomb ones, hydrangeas? Yeah, right. Laying in those, no sunlight could get to it, and the soil had spilled out, and the flowers were in disarray. And she said, hey, that pole is bent. Can you realign that and put it back up, please, Jeff? I said, sure, sure, honey, I'll do that. And for six straight days, I drove in and out of the driveway and looked at that thing laying in the weeds, in the, in the, in the hydrangeas. And then finally, I just tried to prop it back up without really fixing the base of the pole, which was bent. You know what happens? Falls back over again. Well, eventually, she nudged me. Went out there, straightened the pole, find a new spot, put it back in, put the soil back in. Those flowers will not grow unless that's addressed, unless the soil is put back in the pot, unless it's put back in a place where it can receive sunlight. Confession's kind of like that in your life. You won't grow. And confession helps you put the soil of your heart back in a condition where God can work again, where we can grow. But what do we do? We drive right by and ignore it, or we just try to prop things up, right? And then it falls back over again. And we kind of get used to it. Oh, well, that's just the way it is. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And I'm reading from the New King James Version there for a reason. The New King James uses the word covers. Your Bible, your pew Bible, your Bible in your hand or on your phone might say conceals. It's the Hebrew word kish. And it's not always a bad thing. Here it is. The one, you and I, if we cover, kish, our own sins, we will not prosper. But if we confess them, we'll find mercy. Then we read in Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, kish. So covering is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Love covers, kish, a multitude of sins. Your sin needs to be covered. But you're not supposed to cover your sin. Right? Covering your sin is a job you're not qualified for. It's outside your job description. But it needs to be covered. That presents us with a bit of a problem. What do we do about that? This is the problem of confession. If the purpose of confession is to realign our hearts and put us back in the condition where we can grow, the problem of confession is that we don't, we, can't, we, we don't want to do it. We try to cover our own sin. Psalm 32, verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I did not cover, kish, my sin. It's God's job to cover your sin. It's your job to confess it. And we get those things mixed up. That's the purpose of confession. Now, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is one of the signature texts in the New Testament on 
confession. John wrote John's gospel. He wrote the book of Revelation. And he wrote these three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We'll read this portion from chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The purpose of confession is to put our hearts back right. And this is telling us how that works exactly. The word in Greek for confession, so if God's job is to cover and our job is to confess, let's talk about what confession actually is. The word translated confess here in Greek is a compound word. It's the word homo legeo. Homo meaning same, legeo meaning speak or speech. So same speech. Speak the same, literally translated to. It means sometimes to agree with, but literally it means to say the same thing. How is that confession, to say the same thing? It means when you and I as Christians, Christ followers, say the same thing, we are saying the same thing about our sin as God says about it. To agree with the Word of God and the Spirit of God about what's really going on in us. That's confession. Homo legeo, to speak the same. And this is profoundly difficult for us, isn't it? We don't want to say the same thing. We want to change it a bit. There's, in other words, there's no spin control in the Christian act of confession. You hear this all the time. Someone commits the sin of adultery, having sexual relations with someone who's not their spouse. It was a moment of indiscretion. No, it wasn't. Cheating your business partners, the government, or well, you know, I cut some corners. No, you didn't. Telling outright lies. Well, I, I, I may have shaded the truth. Abuse, physical, sexual, verbal. Well, I've, I lost my temper. We're not saying the same thing. And you may not do that, what I just described, but you and I have our own propensity to not want to say the same thing, Right? To find ways to excuse ourselves. Let me give you seven ways that we scheme to evade homologeo, honest confession. Number one, we justify. Well, it wasn't really that bad. In fact, when you think about it, it was kind of a good thing. Look at how, it, I know they didn't like it much, but had to be done. We excuse. Sure, sure, it was wrong. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I was provoked. She started it. You don't know what he's like. We hide. We avoid people or places or situations that will remind us of the truth about ourselves. I've told this story a number of times. It's happened more than once. I've been out at a local establishment like Target or something or Walmart, and I'll see somebody, and I know they have some issues going on in their life, and they haven't been to church in a long time. And they look up and they see me, and they see that I see them, and I see that they see that I see them, right? <laughs> and then they do this. They look down, and they go to a different aisle, and I follow them. No, I know I don't do that. <laughs> I don't do that. But I know what's going on in their mind. They're thinking, oh no. Because I am a visible reminder to them of the thing they're running from. And it's what they need most. Not me, but 
God's grace, God's people. So we avoid, we, we, we hide. We rename, I just talked about that. We call it something else. We postpone. You know, I'm dealing with a lot right now. I'll get to that later. I'll deal with that issue later. Later never comes. We bargain. How many of you have done this? I know I messed up, God, but if you could just get me off the hook this one last time, I promise I will never do that again. We deflect. Listen, I, I'm not a perfect person. I never would claim to be. But she's a hot mess. Have you seen her life? And look at that guy. I mean, I'm way better than, I don't have that issue. We go right down the list of ways that we don't want to say the same thing. You could do a study on this. Our job is confession, nothing less. God's job, and he's faithful and just to do it, is to cover, to cleanse, and to forgive. Again, this is the problem of confession. If confession of our sin is the pathway to experiencing the grace of Jesus and the restoration of our relationship with God, then why do we resist it so much? Why is it so hard? We're conditioned in our culture. You are and I am in our culture to project, and in our own sinful hearts, it's in us to begin with, but certainly in our messed up culture these days, to project an image of ourselves that is not accurate. Last summer, my wife and I celebrated our 25th anniversary, and we went to Hawaii to celebrate. Never been to Hawaii, probably never going back. It was nice, but it's, it's forever away. I didn't realize it's like halfway to Japan. I thought it was off the coast of California. It's so far. Anyway, um, but it was a nice trip. And while we were there on the beach, one, this cruise ship came into the resort we were staying in, and he saw the people get off, and I was a little bit annoyed because it was a nice private beach, and now they're going to be flooding our beach because the cruise ship had an arrangement with the resort. You know how that works. And so we're sitting there under the shade of these palms, and I'm reading my book, and I see these four teenage girls, probably eighth grade, freshman year age, come over in there on the beach. And you know what they did? For four hours, the ship was in port. Taking pictures of themselves. Delete, delete, delete. Change, change, change. Delete, delete. What? For four, I'm not kidding you, for hours. Trying to get the perfect shot to post on their social media so their friends back home would go, look how awesome their life is. The whole time, to show people what a great time they had in port, when all they did was take pictures. Now, maybe you're not a selfie king or queen, but we're all conditioned to project an image of ourselves that's not accurate. And we do it in church as well. We do it in all areas of our life. I talk with a man who's new uh, to our church, and he's in a men's group. Part of the men's group is they memorize scripture and pray for each other and talk about their struggles and sins. And it's, I was hoping it would be really helpful for him because he's really growing. God's really working on him. And I, and I met with him recently. I said, well, how's it going? It's been six months. I said, how's it going? He goes, it's, I really like those guys. But uh, to be honest, I'm, I have a lot of anxiety and fear they're going to find out I'm a total fake. I said, I know how to deal with that. I know how to fix that. He said, how? I said, just tell them all the stuff you're dealing with. If you out yourself, they can't discover you're a fake. Like if you just tell them what's really going on, then there's no fear of discovery because it's out there. And he asked a very interesting question. I bet it's one you've all asked. He said, yeah, yeah, but can't I just confess to God? Yes, you can just confess to God, and you should. But we need to ask ourselves, why do we have such fearfulness about confessing to other believers? Why... Why does that make us anxious and fearful? The best thing I've read on this subject outside the Bible on the issue of confession is by an author, can you guess? 
No, it's not C.S. Lewis. I totally set you up. It's by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a number of books. He, was, he lived during Nazi Germany. He was a, 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 a martyred for his faith and for a plot to overthrow Hitler. And he wrote many books. One of the books I'm, re- I'm referring to is a book called Life Together. Very small book, still in print. It's excellent. Particularly his chapter called Confession and Communion. He wrote this book while running an underground seminary to train pastors to be faithful to the gospel when Nazism fell. And he finished part of it when he was in prison awaiting his execution. He says, when we confess... To other believers, there's three breakthroughs that happen in our lives. Number one, we break through to community with each other. Number two, we break through to the cross. And number three, to certainty of God's forgiveness. Listen to what he says. Why is it that it's often easier for us to confess our sins to God than to a brother or sister? God is holy and sinless. He is a just judge of evil and the enemy of all disobedience. But a brother or sister is sinful as we are. He or she knows from his experience the dark night of secret sin. Hear what he's saying? Let me ask it to you this way. If you have really messed up, something you're ashamed of, I mean, hypothetically, I know it wouldn't, but just pretend that it happens to you. I'm going to give you two choices. Choice A, you can confess that privately to God. No one has to know. Choice B, you can sit with six to eight other human beings and tell them what you did. How many of you, all things being equal, would choose A? Show of hands. If your hand's not up, you're, you're probably lying or not listening. Right? <laughs> you should confess that lie. Right? Almost all of us would choose A, thank you. I don't want to tell everybody else. If I could deal with it privately, I'd rather deal with it privately. And Bonhoeffer asked this question later in that same chapter. He says, why? Why is it easier for us to go alone before a holy God who we just sinned against than to sit in the company of fellow sinners who can remind us of God's grace and forgiveness. Perhaps we have it wrong. Perhaps, he says, we are in danger of what he calls self-forgiveness. That when we go alone, we're actually not going to God, we're just talking to ourselves, keeping it quiet, keeping it hidden, keeping it in the dark. This is not to say you can't confess privately. Of course you can, and God hears, and God sees, and God knows, and God forgives. What it is saying is sometimes, oftentimes, I believe, when we bring it into the presence of other believers, we're coming to God in a way that we don't when we're alone. A powerful way. This is why James says in James 5, 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your sins, not just the sins I commit against you, but all of them to one another and pray for one another. In John chapter 20, Jesus, after his resurrection, before his ascension, he appears to his disciples and he says a number of things. In this particular verse, 21 to 23 of chapter 20, Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. And his next words are, if you forgive anyone their sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Well, that sounds kind of obvious, right? If I don't forgive you, I haven't forgiven you. No, he's saying something much deeper than that. He's saying only Christ can forgive sins, but you and I that are in Christ have the profound supernatural responsibility to hear confession and to remind people of what Christ has done. We're supposed to do that. And it's a lost practice in the church today. I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that for most of you in this room, 
confession to brothers and sisters is not a regular part of your week. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm going to guess that's true for most of you. That you don't look for opportunities. It's my favorite thing to sit down and talk about all the things I'm struggling with. <laughs> we evade it and avoid it, and it's to our own loss that we do so. Again, from Bonhoeffer. A man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother or sister knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. Notice what John says in John 1 verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, what does it say? One another. Do you find that curious? Wouldn't you think he would say if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him? Of course you do. But he says specifically one another. Confession not only reconciles us to God, but opens us to reconciliation with each other. And I don't just mean if I sin against Pastor Kenton, I have to confess to him. I mean it, it opens me to have right relationships. Think about it. What kind of relationship can I have with people if I never talk to anyone about what's really going on? You know, what kind of relationship can you have? You can talk about the Cubs. You can go fishing. Talk about how the kids are doing. But what kind of relationship can you have with someone if you never talk about the deep shame, the deep struggles, the dark places? If that doesn't get unpacked anywhere, what kind of relationship can you have with God? But we want to cover. We want to do a job that is not ours to do. And we've been doing it since Genesis 3, haven't we? What is the first reaction, consequence of sin? Shame and awareness, and then immediately afterwards, right? God comes looking for Adam and Eve because they're hiding. And, and they, they, they eat the fruit, and they realize what? What do they realize? They're naked. And what do they first do? <gasps> they cover. The instant reaction to awareness of my sin is shame and covering. And we've been doing this ever since. And we do it with each other. And the Bible, from front to back, is saying, you can't cover yourself. It won't work. But there's one who can. Your job is not to cover, it's to confess. This brings us to the power of confession. The fundamental reality is that sin wants to remain unknown, hidden, and that's where it has power over you. The, the less you talk about what you struggle with, the more its power will, will, will be increased over your life. This is precisely what John means when he says, walking in darkness, walking in the light. How many of you like cockroaches? <laughs> Didn't think so, right? Well, years ago, we used to take a missions trip to um, the south side of Chicago. And we slept in a community center, which is right near the food storage area. Sometimes in the middle of the night, I'd go in there and turn the light on in the food storage area, and you'd see like 600 cockroaches like, for a split second, and they go scurrying for cover, right? But for a second, you see them all. It's a metaphor for what we do. There, the stuff is there, but as soon as the lights are on, what happens? We run for cover. John tells us in John's gospel, he says in John chapter 12, men love the darkness because their deeds are evil. Cockroach behavior. We run for cover. But John chapter 8, verse 12 says that, remember what, let me just go back here for 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. What's the message? God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. John's gospel, John 8, verse 12. Jesus is the light of the world. If we walk in him, we will not walk in darkness. 
In John 12, verse 36, by believing in him, Jesus, the light of the world, we become children, sons and daughters of the light. John picks up on that light-dark imagery here in his letter and says, this is the message. God is light, and there's no darkness at all. So, so what does it mean then to walk in the light? It says walk in the light as he is in the light. What does it mean to walk in the light? This is, we're getting right down to what the power of confession really is here. Well, it cannot mean being sinless, because we're already told if we say we're without sin, we're lying. We don't live by the truth. And it can't mean that we cover ourselves, because we've already been told we cannot. I think walking light means two things, at least two things. In John 1, verse, chapter 2, John 2, excuse me, verse 9, it won't be on the screen here. John says, John 2, verses 9 and 10, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. So first, walking in the light means living a life of love. Love for God and love for others. Walking as Jesus lived. And number two, right next to number one, it means confessing when you fail at number one. Number one, walking light means live a life of love. And number two, it means confessing when you screw that up. Sometimes Christians are called hypocrites in our culture. Sometimes rightfully so. Sometimes we behave hypocritically. But if a hypocrite really is somebody who says one thing and does another, which of you is not? How many of you believe, would say right now you believe in the high ideal of love? We ought to live in love for God and love for our neighbor. Only that many of you? Some of you aren't sure about that one? How many of you fail to love God and love your neighbor? Okay? Saying one thing, doing another. How many believe in, 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 in forgiveness? I should freely forgive as I have been freely forgiven. I do. How many of us haven't withheld forgiveness from those who deserve it and need it from us? I have. I believe in service and, yet I, and, and self, selfless, selflessness and self-sacrifice, and yet I act selfishly. Go right down the list of the things I say I believe in and fail to live up to. So this is walking in the light, friends. Walk in love. Live a life of love. And be quick to confess when you fail at number one. Don't spin. Don't hide. Don't pretend. So why don't we? Why don't we confess and deal with our sin openly if it's the pathway to experiencing grace and helps us get right relationship with God and with each other. Why, do, why is it so difficult for us? I'll tell you why I think that is. My own life and probably in yours. I think it's because we really don't believe deep down what John says here in 1 John chapter 1 about God, that he is faithful and just to forgive. I mean, we, we intellectually believe that, but we struggle to believe it for ourselves. We wonder... Yes, I know God is love and forgiving, but isn't there a statute of limitations on this sin because I did it again? Let me ask you a question. I ask this question often. I think it's worth pondering. What do you think God thinks of you? He does think of you, you know. What do you think God thinks of you? Answer that in your own heart right now. How many of you, when I ask that question, if you're answering it in your mind, said something along these lines. He loves me, but. He loves me, but I'm kind of a hot mess in this area. 
He loves me, but I, I, I really, I'm a work in progress. I, I keep screwing up. He's patient. I, we go from he loves me to what we ought to be doing or ought not to be doing. How many of you are like that? That's not what God thinks of you, friend. That's what you think of you, but it's not what God thinks of you. If you are in Christ, meaning if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you belong to him, he's aware of your sins, but it's not how he thinks of you. Best analogy is moms and dads. Think of your son or daughter's worst day. Worst thing, worst moment you're most frustrated with them. Is that how you think of them? Do you define them by their worst moment? Do you think of them based on what the worst thing they did? No, you know because you're mom and dad. But you don't think of them that way. You think of them as my son, my daughter, my boy, my girl. I love them. Now, I know about their issues, and they are many, right? But it's not how I think of them. That's an imperfect picture for you of how God, your father, looks at you. This goes back to the issue of kish, covering. If you try to cover your sin, it will never work. If you let, John says, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. He covers us. So when the Father looks at you, he does not see your worst moment. He sees his beloved Son who covers you and he loves you. When that gets from your head down into your heart, then confession is not something you should run from, but run to. It's the pathway back to the God who loves you. But I think for many of us, we struggle to believe that at the deepest level. I saw this on Facebook this week. Facebook is good for some things, perhaps. It, it, I think this is so great. It said, religion equals, I really screwed up. Dad's going to kill me. The gospel equals, I really screwed up. Better call dad. I love that. That is exactly right. For the one who's in Christ, I really screwed up. I need to call my father. How can I do that? Through the Son. What's the best way to do that? With fellow family members in the household of God who can listen and remind me of my forgiveness and pray for me. In them I come into the presence of God. That's the discipline of confession. To break you free from the lies. You know, 20 plus years ago, I was hiding, pretending, not saying the same thing about an area of my life that I was kind of stuck in sin. Not kind of, I was. And I had convinced myself or been convinced by the evil one that if I talk about this stuff, you know, I don't think Aaron, my wife, could handle it. I think it would, I just don't, I, it's, just, it's just, I can't talk about it. It'd be too painful, too hard, consequences too dire. Now you're wondering what it was. That's not the point. <laughs> You've got your own area. But you know what God taught me? When, I, when he finally cracked me open by his grace and I finally spilled it and I finally confessed, I finally said the same thing, the truth. You know what God taught me? The stuff I feared most was exactly the opposite. The people I was most afraid of knowing were the ones that showed me the most grace and love. It was freeing. Nothing else will free you that way. Some of you are hiding and pretending, and you have been for a while. Stop running. Run to your Father who loves you. Let me just give you, well, let me just read 1 John 1, 9, because it's, actually, you know what I'm going to do? I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time, and I have to get to the other campus, but this is so good, I have to read it. This is a longer quote from Bonhoeffer. It's long, but it's so worth it. Listen to what he says here. 
Those who remain alone with their sin are left utterly alone. It is possible that Christians may remain lonely in spite of daily worship together, prayer together, and all their community through service. Isn't that true? And the final breakthrough to community does not occur precisely because they enjoy community with one another as pious believers, but not with one another as sinners. For the pious community permits no one to be a sinner. Hence, all have to conceal their sins from themselves and from the community. We're not allowed to be sinners. Many, this is funny, many Christians would be unimaginably horrified if a real sinner were suddenly to turn up among them. We got some here, you know. So we remain alone with our sin, trapped in lies and hypocrisy, for we are, in fact, sinners. However, the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to comprehend, confronts us with the truth. It says to us, you are a sinner, a great unholy sinner. Now come, as the sinner that you are, to your God who loves you. For God wants you as you are, not desiring anything from you, a sacrifice or a good deed, but rather desiring you alone. My child, give me your heart. You cannot hide from God. This is a great line. The mask you wear in the presence of other people won't get you anywhere in the presence of God. God wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go online to yourself and to other Christians as if you were without sin. I I could have just read the whole chapter to you and it would have been better than my sermon probably. It's so good. 1 John 1, 9. If you memorize scripture, commit this one to memory. Bury it in your heart. Recite it to yourself often. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I'm going to give you a chance to do that right now. One at a time, we're going to come up here. No, I'm only kidding. But right now, where you sit, I'm going to give you the opportunity to confess. And this is your challenge for the week, should you choose to accept it. End every day this week by taking a little spiritual inventory of confession and do that by praying these two portions of the Psalms. Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 5. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. So right now, I'd like you just to bow your heads. Close your eyes. Speak to your Father who loves you. And let him speak to you. Ask him to search your heart, to try you. Maybe he points out a relationship that you need to put right. Or a truth you need to tell. Maybe he's calling you to repent of some action. You can trust him. Now let me read over you this prayer from the book, The Valley of Vision. 
O Lord, all your promises in Christ Jesus are yes and amen and shall all be fulfilled. You have spoken them and they shall be done, commanded and they shall come to pass. Yet I have often doubted you, have lived at times as if there were no God. Lord, forgive me that death in life when I have found something apart from you, when I have been content with ephemeral things. For through your grace I have repented. You have given me to read my pardon in the wounds of Jesus, and my soul trusts in him, my God incarnate, the ground of my life, the spring of my hope. Teach me to be resigned to your will, to delight in your law, to have no will but thine, to believe that everything you do is for my good. Give me the confidence I ought to have in Christ Jesus, who is worthy to be praised and who is blessed forevermore. Amen.